Amerigo Vespucci. Does that name ring a bell? He was the Italian merchant, the explorer, the navigator for whom our land, America, and its islands are named. In 1503, he wrote a letter to a friend named Lorenzo, and in that letter, he referred to these lands that were discovered by European navigators, not as they referred to them, as the edges of Asia, but instead, he called them Mundus Novus, or the New World. What excitement that term must have generated this idea of a new world it gives the impression that this world is not all that there is there's something more there's something else out there there's something to be uh, desired something different something beyond a new world meant discovery it meant adventure it meant hope it meant the probability the possibility of a better life or maybe an escape from this one, standing at the doorstep of a new world, a new life, a new hope, a man named Jacob stood before the most powerful man in, in all the world. And he said this in Genesis 47, 9 to Pharaoh, he said, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years and trouble, oh, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days and years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. In other words, what he's saying is, compared to my father and my grandfather, my life, it's been relatively short. And it's been full of trouble. And trouble he most certainly had. Remember his flight from home? Remember, it was his brother that said, I'm going to kill you, and so he had to take off running. Remember, he was deceived into marrying the older sister of the girl that he loved. Remember how his family quickly grew into just a hot mess. He now had two wives and two maidservants. They gave birth to imperfect children. Remember what happened to Dinah. Remember what Simeon and Levi did to defend her honor. At the birth of his 12th son, his beloved Rachel passed away. Then, some years later, he would find out that his favorite son, Joseph, probably was ripped, uh, ripped apart by wild animals. Then, after that, he now believes that he's lost his son, Simeon, as his sons went down to Egypt to find food. They didn't come back with him. And then, as they're still starving... Still looking for hope, still realizing we got to go back to Egypt now. We got to get more food, but we can't go back there unless we bring the youngest with us. And Jacob considers sending Benjamin. His life was full of trouble. And all the while, he's, he's somehow trying to keep the faith. Somehow trying to trust the word of God that had come to him and his father and his grandfather. So yes, I'd say his life was a, it was a rough go of it. It wasn't easy. His path was marked by, by trouble. 
How's your life's journey been? Have you seen trouble? (laughs) I've seen it. This was a difficult road that Jacob walked. But as we come to Genesis 45, we realize that those days are in the past. After what we saw happen last week, as Joseph was now reconnecting with his brothers, and the family is coming back together, we saw the forgiveness, we saw the reconciliation, we saw the crying, the hugging. Things were about to change, and they do. For Jacob and his family, the land of Egypt, it became almost a sort of Noah's Ark. It was a place of refuge through the storm. It was a safe haven, a place of shelter, of sustenance, a place where they would not only live, but they would thrive. For them, Egypt was about to become the new world. We could use a new world right now. Maybe you're listening to this or watching this right now, and like Jacob, you find yourself feeling like your days have been, like he said, evil. It's been rough. Maybe you're like me, and you're tired, and you're worn out. Your enthusiasm for life, it just isn't what it used to be. Every day just feels like you've got another mountain to climb. And and maybe even the littlest bumps along the way, they feel like they might be just, that might put me over the edge might be the straw that breaks the camel's back. In our passage this morning, Jacob transitions to the new world. And rather than just walk through this in a straight line like we normally do here on Sunday mornings, I'd like to take this time that we have to to simply tease to the surface how this passage parallels and reminds us of another new world, a world that we have to look forward to. There are are some parallels here. I've found 10. There are probably more. Jacob's call to dwell in the good land of Egypt, it foreshadows the way the promised one would call people to make heaven their home. Let's look at the parallels. Number one is this. There's a need. The people in Canaan, and all over the known world for that matter, they were suffering, they were starving. A worldwide famine had choked crops, it had famished livestock. The situation was desperate, it was bad. And that drove Jacob to send his sons down to Egypt to get more food. The need was great, so great that he did the unthinkable. He did what he said he would never do, the thing that would kill him, he sent his son Benjamin. Isn't it true that no one thinks that they need a Savior until they understand how great their need actually is? That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who understand and acknowledge their need. There's a a poverty There's a a bankruptcy, an awareness that that they don't have the means necessary to get themselves out of the hole in which they find themselves. You know, there are a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers these days that encourage people to follow Jesus. They encourage people to even trust Jesus, but they're, 
they try, if possible, to avoid talking about why people really need Jesus. Jesus, they'll say, means enhancing your life. It means making it better, going farther, accomplishing your dreams. He's the one that can help you, but maybe not the Savior. We don't want to preach Jesus as Savior. We don't want to preach that people need a Savior because, well, people don't really want to hear that they need a Savior. That might hurt their self-esteem. It's politically incorrect these days to preach that people need anything other than themselves. Everyone's just fine the way that they are. It's not you that needs to change. It's that your world needs to change around you to accommodate you. People need to check themselves and get on board with who you are. You do you. And if anyone else doesn't like that, well, you know where you can tell them to go. People don't want to hear that they need a Savior, but the Apostle Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You see, the simple and crucial truth is this. People need a Savior. Because whether they know it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, Everyone is in need. The Bible says all have sinned. All are on the outs with their creator, their maker. All are lost. And they have an appointment with destiny that unless something changes, that's going to usher in an unbearable eternal sorrow. There's a need. I praise God for the report this past week that that one preacher, a man by the name of Todd White, confessed that what he's been preaching up to this point was not the full good news. And then he now realizes that, quote, if people don't know they're sinners, they won't see their need for a Savior. I hope he continues down that path and preaches the need, because if you don't know the need, you don't know you need a Savior. That's the first parallel. The second is this. There's confession here. There's confession. We saw that last week when Joseph's brothers stood before him and they came to acknowledge the wrongs that they had done. They said to one another in Genesis 42, 21, they said, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Now notice, they didn't say this is all dad's fault. You know, if dad wouldn't have played favorites, if he would have treated us all equal, then we wouldn't have gotten jealous. And if we weren't jealous, then we wouldn't have become bitter. And if we weren't bitter, well, then we wouldn't have done what we did and threw our brother in a pit and then sold him to those traitors that came along. We wouldn't have done that. We, we, we wouldn't be in the mess that we are in today. But you know what? They don't do that. There's no blame shifting here. A lot of people these days will go to great lengths to blame everyone out there except themselves. Even when they're caught red-handed doing some terrible thing, they'll point the finger and say, nope, it's that person's fault. It's that person's fault. It's that person's fault. It's this circumstance that I find myself in. In fact, if anyone else, if any of you found yourself in the same position that I'm in, well, you would understand that what I am doing is the right thing to do, even though it's wrong. 
and they blame other people. They blame shift. But Joseph's brothers, they don't do that. They take ownership for their faults. At least at this point in their life. Maybe they hadn't done it before, but now they're taking ownership. And that's the same thing the Bible tells us that we need to do. We need to take ownership. If we're going to ever experience the forgiveness that we need and have the hope of the new world, then we need to own it. 1 John 1 8 says, If we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're walking around saying, you know what, I'm pretty good. I've got it all together. I have no need for a Savior. Then you are deceived. You're, 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 you're like a fool walking around not realizing what's really going on. You're deceiving yourselves if you're saying that you think that you are good enough. You're not. It says the truth is not in us. But then it says if we confess our sins, He, the Maker, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession, it's a necessary element for reconciliation, isn't it? It's crucial. Without it, the offended party, they might be able to, to forgive you, right? Someone, maybe you're the offended party. Someone, someone did something wrong against you. Maybe they, maybe they uh, opened their car door into the side of yours, and you're like, you know what? It's, it's okay. I forgive you. I, it's one thing for forgiveness to be offered, but until there's confession, that relationship can't be really restored. Have you ever forgiven someone or said, you know, it, 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 it's okay, but they continue to den deny that they ever did anything wrong? That, that creates a wedge in the relationship, doesn't it? That relationship is never going to be fully reconciled. It's never going to be fully restored because there's, there hasn't been confession there. There hasn't been acknowledgement of the wrong that's been done. David wrote in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Have you ever done something and you, 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 just, you just felt that weight? Maybe no one else knows what you've done, but there's something just weighing you down and you feel that burden and that guilt. That's exactly what he's talking about here. And he's saying that comes from God. It was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. But then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confession is essential. It's, it's, almost, it's almost like the, 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 the medicine that our souls need. And without it, we start wasting away inside. We need to confess, and then the, the weight is lifted, and we feel freedom once again. Confession is the way that we acknowledge and admit our disobedience and our need for restoration to God. It's one thing to know that you have a need, right? One thing to know that you have a need. A lot of people know that they have a need. A lot of people know that they have problems. But rather than admitting that they've rebelled against their creator, they spend their time trying to find ways to fix their problems. And maybe if I purchase this, maybe if I take this supplement, maybe if I read this book, maybe if I practice this breathing exercise or take on a new hobby, distract myself in some way, I'm going to be better. 
They don't admit that what they really need, though. And they don't confess to God the wrongs that they have done. They mask their guilt, cover it up so that they can feel better about themselves, but they're living a lie. When we confess our sins, though, when we confess, we're getting to the heart of the matter, aren't we? We're getting to the heart. We're needy because we've broken that tight relationship that we were designed to have with our Maker. And confessing our sin, well, that shows authenticity, doesn't it? It shows ownership of what we are responsible for. It's one of the first steps to getting right. But confession in and of itself is powerless. Powerless to actually make things right. That's because the power for restoration is in the hands of the ones that we're confessing to. Joseph's brothers, they could have confessed their sin. They could have begged. They could have pleaded. They could have got on their hands and knees. They could have sobbed. They could have wept in front of him. Joseph, how, please forgive us. Please forgive us. Don't, don't fault us for what we did. We were under a lot of stress that, back then. They could, have, they could have begged. They could have pleaded. But unless Joseph extended grace to them, if, unless he forgave them, well, they were going to be in deep trouble. It would have been a complete waste of time. That brings us to parallel number three. There's grace here. There's grace. We hear that word grace a lot, don't we? It can refer to elegance. It can refer to style. It can refer to poise. But when we talk about grace in the Bible, we're talking about an undeserved, unearned favor and kindness. Joseph's brothers, they didn't deserve grace at all. They didn't, they didn't deserve to be forgiven to be shown any type of kindness. They couldn't make up for the wrongs that they had done. And they couldn't jump on a time machine, go back in time and say, hey, wait, guys, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Or they couldn't go reach back into the pit and pull him out. I'm sure in that moment they wished they could have. They couldn't do it. They stood there before their, their brother, completely exposed, completely at his mercy. And that's exactly what they're given. In 45.4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And not only does Joseph forgive them, but he calls them back. He calls them to live with him. He, he blesses them with all of the riches of Egypt. I'm going to give you all of this stuff. Come live with me. I'm going to take care of you. When you and I confess our sins to God, we, we are at his mercy, right? But remember 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Just like Joseph shows this incredible generosity to his brothers, not only does he forgive them, but then he lavishes grace upon them, and, and, and we can experience that same thing. In fact, we do experience that same thing. In fact, we're promised that we will experience that same thing, that God not only forgives you, 
but then he lavishes his riches and kindness upon us. If you've placed your trust in Christ, you have been brought from the pit to the palace, right? You've been brought from death to life. You go from being uh, an object of God's anger to now a cherished son or daughter of the king. And that's what, that's what Ephesians 2 tells us. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's grace is incredible, isn't it? Do you think about that often? So often I find myself looking at all the problems that I have in life, the, the evil of my days. This broke over here. That went wrong over here. This person is annoying me. This person is accusing me. And I look at all those things and I forget that God has lavished His grace upon me, just like Joseph gave grace to his siblings. There's a need. There's a confession. There's grace Fourth, there's a call. There's a call. Genesis 45, 16 says, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. So, so Pharaoh gets wind of what's happening here. He gets wind that there's Joseph's brothers are in town and there's been a restoration, a healing here. And he commands that family, pick up all your stuff, go back, bring everything back to this new world. I've got a new life for you here. Come live with your brother Joseph. And that's the same thing that God does for us. It's the exact same thing. He calls us in Christ to be reconciled to God to be reunited with him, that we might experience his grace in full and have the hope of eternal life. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God needs to call them, and God does call. It says in Acts 17, 30, that God is commanding all people everywhere to repent, to turn around from the direction they're going and come back to him. Just like Pharaoh told Joseph's family, God is calling his people to himself. How do we respond? Now, some people choose to reject that call. Maybe they don't believe it. Maybe they don't trust it. Maybe they just think that it's too downright too good to be true. You know, Jacob didn't believe it, the call at first. He didn't believe it. Genesis 45, 25 says, So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And it says, And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. 
Why should he believe them? This was actually absolutely ridiculous to hear after 20 years of thinking your child was ripped apart by a wild animal. Now he's not only alive, but now he's second in command of the most powerful nation in all of the world. This is just ridiculous. Who would believe such a ridiculous story? It sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? That's not all that different from the way people look at the good gift of eternal life that the Bible speaks of, the gospel, that, that, that Christ is not dead, but he's risen and alive and ruling in heaven, and that he offers you a hope and a future. And some people look at themselves and say, who would offer me a hope and a future? I don't like me. How could God like me? They look at it and they say, it's just too good to be true. It sounds like a fantasy. It doesn't sound like reality. And so they reject it. Or maybe they reject it because trusting in Jesus means turning, right? It means repentance. It means turning away from the life I'm living right now and turning to live in a way that God has called me, that he designed me to live. And I just don't want to do that. That's too high of a price to pay. And then there are other people who don't outright reject God's call, but they choose instead to just ignore it. That's fine and good for some people out there, you know, those people who need religion. But me, I've I've got things figured out. I I know the direction I'm going. I've got hopes and dreams. I've got to accomplish some things. I've got a future here. And they ignore it, continue to go about their daily routine. Can you imagine what would have happened if Jacob would have done that? His family is done. The famine in the land was starving them to death. They had no hope. See, their need, their understanding of their need, it was so prominent in their minds that he couldn't afford to ignore it. And you know, neither can we. You can't afford to ignore the good news that Jesus Christ offers. Because our need, mine and yours, is far greater than any famine far greater. Jacob does accept. Verse 27 says this, when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I'll go to him and see him before I die. You see, after listening to the words of his sons, Joseph's words, that came to him from them, through them, and seeing the evidence of what they were talking about, Jacob goes from disbelief to fully embracing the call. As you and I live out the call to proclaim the good news Do we know God's word enough to tell it? Just imagine if Jacob's brothers or Joseph's brothers completely forgot the message and bumbled it all. Do our lives show evidence of the difference that Christ has made in our lives? Imagine if they had nothing to show their father. He's not going to believe it. Are we prepared to communicate that there is a new world out there? Maybe you're, you're listening to this, you're watching this, and you haven't answered God's call yet. 
What's stopping you? What's stopping you? Do you understand your need? You understand that grace and forgiveness is right there, ready for you. And he's calling you. He's been calling you. In fact, you listening to this message right now, I believe is evidence that God is speaking to you. And he's calling you. Will you answer that call? Just like Jacob, you have two choices. You can accept it. You can reject it. You can have the hope of life in the new world. Or you can reject it and face the famine. And boy, our world is in a period of famine right now. There's not much hope out there. It's time for you to turn to Jesus. Parallel number five. There's an advocate. And this is good. After Joseph reunited with his father in Goshen, Genesis 46, 31 tells us, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. See, Jacob's, Jacob and his sons and all of their entourage, they weren't left to negotiate and deal with the Egyptians on their own. They had a powerful advocate on their side. Joseph told them he's going to go personally to Pharaoh. He's going to go on their behalf. He's going to make it just so. He's going to say just the right things so that they not only get to live in that land, they're going to live in the best of that land. The very best place in Egypt is going to be their home. Goshen was beautiful. It was fertile. It was on the borders of Egypt. And there, Joseph knew that his family was just going to prosper. In a, in a tremendous way. Not only were they going to prosper, but being on the outskirts of Egypt, they can remain a distinct people. They didn't have to intermingle with all the Egyptians there. They didn't have to be influenced by all the pagan rituals and all the stuff that was going on, the sun worship. No, they could be on the outskirts in Goshen, in the best land, and worship their God. This was awesome. They had an advocate. And in the same way Joseph went before Pharaoh on behalf of his family, we have an advocate. 1 John 2, 1 tells us we have an advocate with God the Father. My little children, it says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Do you realize you have an advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous, he says, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propit propitiation, <laughs> I stumble even saying it. That's a $10 word, isn't it? It's a $10 word. It's, it's, it's expensive. It takes a little effort to understand what it really means, but it simply means this. John's telling us that it's Jesus is our propitiation, that he goes before us on our behalf, and he satisfies God's requirements for us to be made right with him. That's what propitiation is. is. When we fail to obey God, we incur a debt. And it's a debt that we can't pay. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's a very, very high penalty, right? Back when my brothers and I uh, were younger, we got BB guns. 
And we set up these targets across the field uh, in front of our house. All these two-liter soda bottles out there. And we had a blast pelting those things. It must have been hours. It was great fun until the neighbor showed up. That neighbor wasn't very happy. And he started explaining to us how his sliding glass door in the back of his house looks like it had been hit by a meteor shower. This was not, not good. And he gave us the price of what he thought it was going to cost to fix it. And we, we just said, we don't have that money. We can't fix it. We can't, we can't make this right. Thank goodness for mom and dad who came through in that moment. They came through. Of course, we're going to have to pay it back over time. But they came through. Without it, there would have been no reconciliation. We would have had an angry neighbor. Things probably would have gone south very, very quickly. We can't pay back what we owe, but we had an advocate, you see, just as we have an advocate in Christ who takes care of our debt on our behalf. We read last week in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God in Christ who suffers the penalty who pays the debt on our behalf because of him and because of, by trusting in him we can be made right with God it's because we have an advocate there is an advocate praise God there is an advocate you have an advocate are you trusting in Christ there's also an exchange parallel number six there's an exchange when Pharaoh tells Joseph to bring his family back to Egypt, he, he tells him this. This is 45, verse 20. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Now, we know Jacob and his family had great possessions. Remember when he was returning back to the land of Canaan? He had great possessions. In fact, he sent them forward in waves to help ease the anger of his brother Esau. Remember, he had a lot of stuff. But now Pharaoh is telling him, you know what? Leave that stuff behind. Don't, don't, don't bother taking anything with you. Why? Because if you try to gather up all that stuff, well, it's just going to, it's going to take time. It's going to bog you down. It's going to weigh you down. You don't need any of that stuff because you know what? My stuff is better. It's far better than anything you've amassed for yourself. Trust me. Now, Jacob had some good stuff. That's probably you know, like stuff from Target. That's like Magnolia Farm stuff. This is, this is nice. It's decorative. It's, it, is, it looks good. People look at us and they say, wow, you've got a lot of good stuff. And Pharaoh's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm opening up stores for you, and it's going to be a shopping spree. And these stores, they're not like Pottery Barn. They're not like Restoration Hardware. In fact, those stores are going to look like 99-cent stores when you see the stuff that I'm going to give you. This is huge. I want you to exchange. I want you to make an exchange. And that's the same thing Jesus tells us. There's an exchange. There's a letting go of the old things that we once thought added significance or security or status. We have to let go of our old ways of doing things in exchange for the best things. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Have you made that exchange? 
made that trade? You know, it's interesting to see in chapter 47, verses 13 to 26, the people, they run out of money, and they're still hungry. And they come to Joseph, and they say, you know what, we, we have an idea. We, we still need food. You got food. Here's what we'll do for you. We'll start selling our land to you for food. And when that land runs out, you know what we'll do? We'll sell ourselves to you because we want to live. Living is good. We like that a lot. And so take our land, take ourselves, we'll exchange it for what you have to offer. And we look at that from our Western perspective and we go, whoa, this does not, does not taste right here. From their perspective, they praised and celebrated Joseph as a hero. Because they saw clearly what Joseph had to offer was far better than anything that they had. And they say this to him in 47.25, You saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Have you exchanged your hopes and dreams? The things that you took pleasure in? The things that you thought added value to your life? The things that... Like the Bible says, moth and rust destroy, and thieves can come in and and, and steal, or scratch, or key. (laughs) Have you exchanged those things for the riches that are eternal and unfading in Christ? In Jacob's case, this was a (laughs) no-brainer. I could either hold on to my stuff and starve, or I could leave it all behind, save my family, and become wealthier and more prosperous than I ever imagined. And the same is true for us, for you and I. There's an exchange, but you know what? It's it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Three more parallels real quick. Seven, there's movement. There's movement. 46.1 says, so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. So Jacob packs up and moves. But notice what he does. The journey is not just a means to an end here. The journey is important here. He uses the journey as an opportunity to worship his God and grow in his relationship with him. He makes a stop off in Beersheba. And he offers sacrifices to God, and God speaks to him there. Listen to what God says. He says, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You know, there's a tendency among some people to think of faith in Christ as a kind of insurance policy that you tuck away in, in, in the family safe, you know, only to be brought out when it's, when it's needed. But the reality is, is that faith in Christ is, is more about movement. It's about movement. If you placed your trust in Christ, then we are, you and I, are on a journey toward the new world. And every moment that we live is one step closer to our destination. And so we, 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 don't just, we don't just walk to get there. 
But every step that we take, we take intentionally. We take with purpose. We don't want to just coast through life but, and check out, but instead we purposefully advance growing in our relationships with God, preparing our hearts and our minds to live in that new home that's coming. It's like living like we already belong there. Paul tells us that we're citizens of heaven. It's like you already have that, that little blue uh, passport, and you open it up, and you see where your citizenship lies. You don't belong here. You belong there. And, and so you live as that citizen, just like you go overseas, and you know, I, I'm, I'm an American citizen, if you are an American, or, or wherever you're from. I'm a citizen of this place, and even though I'm here, I belong there, and so I live like people should live where I belong. That's what we need to do. We need to move forward, embracing, fully embracing who we are in Christ. Parallel number eight, this goes without saying, there's a new home, a new home. They arrived in Goshen. Joseph goes to tell Pharaoh of their arrival, says this in Genesis 47, 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. What an incredible thing this must have been. Absolutely incredible to be there in their new, beautiful home. Have you ever felt that? Maybe you moved and you arrived somewhere that you had wanted to be and you got there and you looked around and you just go, this is this is incredible. This changes everything. This is a new life for us. Look at all the space we have. Look at this park next door. Look at this, the community we're in. This is awesome. This must have been incredible for them. But it's so important for us to remember as we look around at this place where we're living, maybe during this time you're like so many people and you're making Home Depot very, very rich because you're going there and you're buying all kinds of stuff for your house and you're making it a beautiful place. You go, wow, this is awesome. The world outside is trash, but look at my place. This is looking really good. We got to remember, as good as it is, it's not home. Home's far better. Home is far better. Home is in the new world. Don't you want to be there? That's where our hearts need to be. That's where our treasure needs to be, right? Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. It's there. It's coming. One day, like Jacob and his family, you and I, if we've placed our trust in Christ, we're going to be welcomed home. And we're going to look back and go, I thought it would never be, but it's here. And it's forever. It's not going to get old. I'm just going to keep discovering more and more and more. And it's, it's, it's the best thing I've ever, I've ever, I've ever seen. I, I never imagined it was going to be this good. And you know what? I'm not going to get old. This is the best ever. I'm home. Don't you long to be home? I long to be home. It's coming. Get ready. Get excited. 
Let's set our sights on our new home. Number nine, there's fruitfulness. There's fruitfulness. 47, 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God had already blessed Jacob's family. Even as they were traveling down, Genesis 40, chapter 46 tells us by the time they arrived, they were 70 people strong. How big is your family? This family was growing. But when they got into the new world, they prosper even more. And they grow to, to a greater size. And this, this, would be, this would actually become a problem because they'd become so numerous that it would make the Egyptians nervous. Exodus uh, 1 tells us the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And if you've been to Sunday school, you know what happens next. Now, as you and I come to faith in Christ, we journey through life with him in the direction of the new world we're not promised physical health are we we're not promised comfort we're not promised ease in fact jesus said in the world you will have trouble some of us know what that means all too well we know what it means to suffer don't we maybe even this time of covid maybe you've you, you've been stressed out of your mind you've been trying to think of how i'm going to make it financially or am i going to get this thing or but then you've had some other problem that's come up, and you're hurting. We know all too well that, that coming to Christ doesn't mean that you're going to flourish here on this earth, but there's fruitfulness that Christ produces. There's fruitfulness. There's a peace that passes all understanding from, that comes from knowing that your relationship with God is good and it's secure. There's, there's provision as God continues down this road with you, his presence is there, and he's providing for you. He's taking care of you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. There's joy that's not dependent on circumstances, right? But on the ever-constant goodness of God who never changes. There's hope that outshines the darkest nights. And there's spiritual fruit that develops, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it's growing. And it's ripening. So that God's people look less and less like the lost souls that they were, and more and more like their Savior, Jesus Christ. It's good. There's fruitfulness. God made Jacob's family fruitful as they grew in numbers. He makes us spiritually fruitful as we grow and develop into the people that he desires for us to be. One final parallel. There's an invitation. An invitation. The invitation Joseph gave to his brothers. He told them to pass on to the rest of their families. Give this invitation to dad. I want him to come. This is good news. This invitation to the new world was meant to be shared. Have you taken Christ's call seriously? And shared that invitation that maybe you've received, or maybe you're considering right now, and shared it with others. Perhaps now more than any other time in the history of our nation, there's, there's a sense of need. And the people don't know what, what it is that's going to fix that need. Maybe they're looking to fix it through politics. 
or through some vaccine or through some new, new forgivable loan that the, the government is going to come out with or some stimulus package they're, they're going to they're get a hold of and it's going to give them hope and they think that's going to meet their need. But we know that there is a greater need and we've been invited to have that need met. Let's not be content to make our way toward the new world alone. Let's share that invitation and bring as many as we can on that journey with us. Jacob's call to dwell in the good land of Egypt, that foreshadows the way the promised one would call people to make heaven their home. There's parallels. There's a need. There's confession. There's grace. There's a call. There's an exchange. There's movement. There's a new home. There's fruitfulness. And there's an invitation. Maybe you're like Jacob, and you're looking at the days of your life, and you're thinking, they've gone by really, really fast, much faster than I thought they'd go by. And you know what? The days I've had have been, well, they've been full of trouble. They've been hard. They've been rough. Remember that this new, this world that we find ourselves in, this isn't it. There's a new world. Let's set our course. Fix our eyes on what lies ahead until that glorious day when our crossing will be complete and we set foot on the shores of that new home for the first time and forever.